This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we like to talk about everything here on this show. Sports, art, movies, stories of love, life, marriage, and business. We profile entrepreneurs whenever we can. Titans of the business world, small guys, and everything in between. And gals. Fastest growing segment of the American economy and small business is women. More and more women starting their own business, equaling men that no one would have thought 20 or 30 years ago. And one of our favorite shows, because we love television, about business is Shark Tank. And it's on ABC every Friday night. It's on CNBC on an almost endless loop at night alongside The Prophet and a couple of other very good shows. There's a new one with a great restaurateur out of Houston that's just terrific. And you learn a lot about the business world, a lot more than you learn almost anywhere else, certainly in most colleges, than you do at Shark Tank, and it's very entertaining. And so we love to just look back at some of the best and the worst of Shark Tank, and here's one of the worst pitches of all time. Up into the tank stepped Aaron McDaniel with his company, Tycoon, a real estate crowdfunding platform. Well, he hit the studios of Shark Tank to pitch this young platform to the Sharks. And in this episode, Mark Cuban is out in less than 60 seconds. I'm seeking $50,000 in exchange for 5% of my company. For literally hundreds of years, the most proven way to consistently build wealth has been through investing in real estate. Unfortunately, traditional real estate investing is difficult, intimidating, and expensive. The best deals are only offered to the super wealthy behind closed doors, helping the rich get richer and locking the rest of us out. What's wrong with that? (laughs) Now, you have the opportunity to get in on the ground floor of an exciting new business that will change real estate investing forever. Tycoon Real Estate is a crowd investing platform that allows everyday people to invest in real estate for as little as $1,000. I hate it. I'm out. Ouch. Wow. Ouch. I smell jail time. I smell jail time. Oh, by the way, what's the company worth, guys? I got it. 1.2 million. 1.2. Wait a second. 50K, 5%. Oh, I thought he said 60. No, he said 50. All right, all right. 1 million? 1 million. All right. Bingo. And by the way, how that works is for 5% of the company at 50K, you go to a 20 times multiplier to get to the million, to get to the 100% stake. That means he was going to be selling 20 people 5% shares at 50,000. That's a million. So this guy was valuing his company at a million dollars. And Mark Cuban goes, a million bucks? I'm out of here. This isn't even an idea yet. McDaniel goes on to explain how his company works, while Mark Cuban continues to just give him grief. So first we go to Tycoon's website. Once you're here, you can look through our list of investment opportunities. There are a variety of different types, from residential to commercial, each with their own unique investment objectives. So as an example, this one here is a marquee retail property that's part of a large commercial complex just outside of the Manhattan area. All you have to do is enter the amount of money you'd like to invest, go through a simple online process, and once the investment goal is met, you're a real estate investor. Then you can sit back and enjoy the profits you get from the appreciation and the cash flows of the property. So Sharks, we're on the brink of an exciting new era where literally anyone can be a real estate tycoon. How do I get my money back? How do I get the return? Boom, boom, boom. Give the guy a cigar. Give a guy a cigar. Because that is the question. And this guy tries to answer Robert's question and goes on to answer a few more. 
from the other sharks. So, I mean, ultimately, this is this is a business to scale in a big way. No, but walk me through a single model. Sure. I invest in that building in New Jersey. I give you $10,000. Sure. I assume I own some percentage of it. That's correct. I assume that building is taking on so much rent. I'm making money. Yes. Then the building gets sold one day. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming I make a return on my $10,000 equal to my value of the overall building. Right. So, depending on... Who sets on the value of the building at the time that I invest? The What we refer to as the deal maker, the developer who is looking to raise money for the project. So, there's a lead developer that is in charge of the investment? That's correct. Are you taking a fee? So what we take is a management fee. How much is it? 1.25% of the amount raised. Wow. That's not bad. Or is it? Mr. Wonderful asks McDaniel about alternatives to his platform. Mark Cuban continues to balk at the pitch. Well, let's say I want to invest in real estate. I can go online to one of the big players, Fidelity or Schwab. I can buy a REIT. A REIT is a real estate investment trust mm -hmm. so that people can get diversification in real estate Total liquidity, I can buy and sell it any day I want. I'm going to get my yield of 4.5%, mm -hmm. and I have 5,000 properties inside the REIT. REITs aren't sexy. Nobody brags about REITs. That's so horrible. But Aaron, who so cares horrible. about sexy when that it comes so to saving my money? Because that is you wrong talk to any, so you talk ways, to any real estate investor, and one of the main reasons they talk about investing is that physical, emotional connection they have to the building. I think people have a physical, emotional connection to their life savings. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Robert, in or out? I think when you're dealing with people's life savings, mm -hmm. and I think this attracts the kind of person who wants a greater return for their retirement, I think you've got to be conservative with your money. Be risky at work, be safe with your investments. And, and to that point, there, there's a, okay. Lori, in or out? I don't like the idea of investing in real estate online with a bunch of other people I don't know. That seems to me risky and uncomfortable. And for that simple reason, I'm out. So what about the real estate girl? Barbara Corcoran, in or out? I think the Achilles heel in this, mm -hmm. and it comes from years of investing in real estate, is your lead investor. Who is the lead investor? How smart are they? How do they work the angles? What kind of financing do they provide? And I believe that that's the key to any great real estate investment. Mm -hmm. This is a mystery investor here. How do I know he's got a good eye? How do I believe his projections? Too spooky and frankly unfair to someone who isn't well informed in the real estate business and experience. That's right, and that's why we do the vetting to make sure we only work with top people. You gotta trust the opinion of who's behind it. And that's what's scary, and that's why I'm definitely out. Wow, and that's a woman who knows a lot about real estate. Mr. Wonderful, in or out? You have something here that sounds interesting to me. And so here, I'm gonna tell you what I wanna do with you. There's going to be thousands of sites like Tycoon that emerge. They have no brand. Just think of the name, Tycoon. Tycoon. Please. Tycoon, what does it say to a small investor? It's a ripoff name. And Mr. Wonderful continues. You have no brand. Tycoon means nothing to anybody. <laughs> I do have a brand. I have a track record of success. Mm -hmm. I'll give you $50,000. I want 50%. I'm going to rebrand this thing. I wouldn't go anywhere higher than 10% with that. Bummer. You think I'm going to put my name? He doesn't I I'm not asking for your name. But this you have nothing. Correct. I have a proven model that raised a billion dollars in 36 months. My name. Got to decide, Aaron. What do you want to do? No. Right. So. He's saying no. All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I forgot your name already. I'm out. Thank you. <laughs> and shortly after this episode aired, five real estate crowdfunding platforms joined together to purchase Tycoon Real Estate following the episode Traffic to Tycoon site rocketed to a point the site could no longer handle the load of traffic. The sharks can be right. The sharks can be wrong. This is Lee Habib, our Shark Tank episode on Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about love, death, sports, and of course, the thing we do most in our lives, work. And occasionally we bring you public policy stories, but only when it hits the pavement. That is, only when it affects you, the listener. And they're usually brought to us by our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. Take a listen to his great piece on why it cost, well, almost $1,400 for an hour or two of nursery care at the hospital and why he wasn't told and what it was like to go and figure out what that bill was like. It's both funny, it's both aggravating, and in the end, it's a lesson in pricing, transparency, and everything's wrong and everything that's wrong with our health care system. And now, Alex brings us this field report. In Michigan, any employee who makes over $100,000 within a school system, it gets reported. It has to be reported on the school's website. They don't necessarily have to name the employee, um, but they do have to report it somewhere what the position is. You're listening to Jared Skorup, a policy analyst at Michigan's free market think tank, the Mackinac Center. And so somebody in Lansing had tipped us off because they noticed that somebody in the district was making over $200,000 and they were curious about it. And so we dug into it and what we found was that it was the head of the state's uh, public employee union, the Michigan Education Association. The MEA, the state's largest teachers union. The Mackinac Center discovers this and they're puzzled. Why is the prominent, well-known head of a private organization, just like the CEO of Goldman Sachs is, listed as an employee of a public school system, a taxpayer-supported system, and making more money than any other employee, including its head, the superintendent? $20,000 more. This is the Steve Cook Story. So Steve Cook, the head of the MEA, was a paraprofessional. A teacher's assistant at the Lansing School District. He was making an hourly wage when he left in 1991. He was making somewhere around $25,000 a year. He left to become the treasurer of the MEA and later ascended to the presidency. And so at the time, his pension would have been, you know, maybe $10,000 or so once he retired. Should have been for his time as a paraprofessional. What we discovered in digging through this was that the school, he was technically employed by the school district, but he was paid by the union. And what the union was doing was it was funneling money through the school district to pay his salary. And his pension. That sounds really weird to people. Why, why would that happen? It is really weird. My boss at our private company doesn't pay the local school district around here the amount of my salary and pension, which, by the way, I don't have. Only 35% of private employees do. But they can then pay me. I had never even heard of such an arrangement before this story. What's even the point of doing this whole rigmarole? The reason was to spike his pension benefits. From a $10,000 a year retirement benefit from his work as a paraprofessional... To over a hundred thousand dollars a year for as many years as he lives. A public employee's pension is based upon the number of years they've been on the payroll and the amount they were paid in their final three to five years. 
So by remaining on the public payroll, despite doing no work for the public, Steve Cook could balloon his number of years, adding 27 years without work, and balloon the all-important factor of his salary in his final years. From a pension based off of a salary between 16 to 34000 when Steve Cook actually worked for the school district, to a $201,000 one when he didn't. The long story short is he never made, you know, he made $25,000 a year. That would have been about, that's about the salary of somebody who's a paraprofessional working hourly in Lansing schools. So he's going to make a pension four times as large as he ever made as a salary. Um, And there's no other way to say it. The fact that Steve Cook put together this complicated scheme at all certainly means one thing, that the taxpayer-supported pension plan for public school employees was far more generous than what he could get with the MEA's private plan for the private employees who run the teachers' union, a private pension fund that's several hundred million dollars in debt. It's meant that the union has had to go to members and hike their dues payments. Um, and so this, this program is one way for them to avoid some of the costs um, that's eating into their budget. By shifting Steve Cook's pension over to the public pension fund, the union was shifting over their own private problems, their own debt, over to taxpayers and letting it become everyone's problem. And sure, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that too? Just throwing over our personal debt to taxpayers. Here you go, it's yours. But then you'd also have to live with yourself, which could be hard. Besides union executives, no one else in the private sector could get away with this. CEO of Coca-Cola, we would be outraged if he started filtering his money, his $5 million salary through a school district in order to get hundreds of millions of dollars worth of a pension. We'd be outraged by that because we would understand he works for Coca-Cola. That's a private company. He should not be spiking the pension. And 99.9% of public employees couldn't pull this off either. Steve Cook could only do this because he had leverage. Leverage that comes from his power to threaten a teacher strike, leaving children without instruction, as happened in Chicago in 2012. The superintendent in Lansing, who uh, he agreed to this deal in the early 90s, there was a former superintendent, and what he thought was, what sometimes happens is a employee will leave for a couple of years and they do what's called an educator on loan. And sometimes it's they'll go teach at a community college or they'll go to another district for a couple of years. And so they'll enter an agreement basically to say, okay, this is a way so that we keep your, you keep your job here and you're able to come back. And the superintendent who did this agreement with Steve Cook said this was meant to be a short-term thing. Richard Halleck, that former superintendent who agreed to loan Steve Cook, said about it, You want a positive relationship with the MEA. You pick the hill to die on. We were going to be cooperative. Now that's leverage, folks. When a union, a private organization, gets you, a taxpayer representative, to do something that you may not want to do because you fear them. It wasn't the hill to die on. The superintendent who did this agreement with Steve Cook said this was meant to be a short-term thing. And here we are, 25 years later, and he's still taking advantage of the same program. Can you be called an educator on loan if you never intend to go back? And that's why the superintendent who agreed to this 
um, understands that it is not how the program is supposed to work and, and is, in fact, really just a scam on, on taxpayers and on the pension system. Um, and it should outrage school employees. I and mean, we have a pension system, $27 billion in debt. And yet here we do. We have enough money, apparently, for union executives to, to be able to spike uh, their pension and, and, and make way more money than they ever made as school employees. Taxpayers may be forced to bail out the bankrupt pension system, and school employees could have their pensions reduced. Lakeisha Allen is one of those school employees. Like Steve Cook, she's on the Lansing Public School System's payroll. But unlike him, she actually does work for the schools. She's a secretary, making $23,000 a year, and is forced to pay 456 of that to a union that she doesn't want to be a member of, and whose head prioritizes his pension over hers. Lakeisha told the Mackinac Center's watchdog publication, Michigan Capital Confidential, quote, It terrifies me, and if others knew what was going on, I'm sure they would be frightened too. Secretaries are severely underpaid. We, the working class, are the ones who are going to suffer behind the Steve Cooks of the world in the school district for allowing this to happen. And after the break, I'll bring you my investigation of Steve Cook's questionable compensation scheme, how it came to be, and I'll talk to those with responsibility for it. This is Alex Cortez. And great job on that, Alex. When we come back, more of the story of Steve Cook. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with Alex's investigation of Steve Cook, who was a teaching assistant at the Lansing schools until the unions asked that he be loaned out to them in 1991, while still technically being employed by the school district, even all these years later. This is one strange arrangement, folks, but one that allows Steve Cook, a private union employee, to spike his public pension to over $100,000 a year. That's right, $100,000 a year to not work. And at a time when taxpayers and school employees who actually work at the schools are on the hook for a pension fund debt that amounts to $27 billion. Just imagine the CEO of Ford doing this. We'd never hear the end of it. But this top union boss has been allowed to skate by. Let's now go to Alex's investigation where he tries to talk with the people who've got responsibility for this. I tried beginning my investigation 
with the guy who seems to be holding all the cards in this story, Steve Cook. So I called the MEA spokesman David Krim to see if we can set up an interview with Steve. He told me he'd get back to me. I called back nine days later to follow up, but never heard back. Now, 29 days later, I followed up again. This time, though, I got some clarity. Steve Cook turns out not to be interested. And I am sure he's not, but everyone else is, as you'll hear about more later. Time is running, I'm passing, I'm passing, I'm running, I'm running, I'm passing. So you all better get right at this time, because it might be no next time, y'all. So I next tried to speak with the head of the Lansing Public Schools, Yvonne Kamal Kanul, who seemingly is maintaining this arrangement with Mr. Cook. I wanted to ask her why. And they passed me along to her spokesman, Bob Colt. I follow up with Bob several times more, and he finally tells me that Superintendent Yvonne Kamal Kanul passed on an interview. I'm now starting to feel like this is some dirty family secret that no one wants to talk about. What is our situation, Dad? So I try a new group of folks, the school district board members. They also got responsibility in this. Those pesty taxpayers elected them to represent their interests. And the first board member I got a hold of was a lovely Colombian-American named Amy Hodgen. And my accent is not horrible? No, your accent's great. You know, with age... I used to have a beautiful, I learned English almost perfectly, but then I had a cerebral hemorrhage and I had to learn to talk. And I, my, I learned to talk with an accent again, it was so depressing. Amy told me that she wasn't allowed to speak with me. The superintendent, the same one who wouldn't agree to an interview, told the board members that only she and the board president could do interviews about this issue and any other issue, as if Amy and the other elected board members don't have a right to speak. We should be able to not only discuss it as a board, but we should be able to discuss it with parents too. The superintendent seems to have forgotten. School board members don't work for her. They work for the taxpayers who elected them. But Amy asked me to try to follow the rules and first speak with the board president, Peter Spadafore, and that if he wouldn't speak to me, she would, in violation of the superintendent's order. So I called Peter, and once again, this person that I call with some level of responsibility for this Steve Cook arrangement passed... With unanswered questions, I went back to Amy to see what she knew about Steve Cook's arrangement. There have been articles from the press, uh, but it's it's a subject that has not been, I mean, discussed by the board. Why haven't they discussed this? Do they think they can't? I mean, they're the school board. They're the ones taxpayers put in charge. They're the employer, right? Right. Honestly, I have no idea at this point what were the terms. I think it's time that we we should be able to discuss it and give the right answers to whoever asked us. 
public schools are criticized constantly. And, and so for board members and for superintendents, it's frustrating that everything you read is negative and for Pete's sake there's got to be something positive that we're doing. Uh, we have excellent teachers, we have programs, especially in Lansing, that you don't have in the rest of the state. We have Spanish immersion, we have Chinese immersion, we have Montessori, we have incredible programs. And yet, nobody seems to write and say, oh my God, my kid is going to that class, my kid has the most fantastic teacher. It's always the negative. Amy's right. It's Steve Cook's determined to continue his arrangement and allow all this negative attention to keep coming at the school district. It is a problem. Uh, it is written on, on social media at least once a week by, by a parent. So it's not, it's not like it's not being discussed out there by parents. And again, it's sad. It's, it's these little things, or big, they're big things for parents, which in turn reflect on us, and it's something that we have nothing to do with it and has nothing to do with the education of the kid. Even if the school board refuses to meet about this issue, why hasn't the school district at least exercised their right to put an end to Steve Cook's contract? Well, they say it's complicated. Michigan Capital Confidential received a copy of Steve Cook's actual agreement in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. And there's three words in it that the school district believes prohibits them from ending the contract. Those three words shall be renewed, as in shall be renewed in perpetuity. So when the contract was up for renewal at the end of the first three years, the superintendent at that time, Richard Halleck, approached Steve Cook about changing the three words to maybe renewed. He refused. That one teeny word, shall, Halleck said, made us kind of trapped. Legally. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 It would be up to Mr. Cook on when to end his contract. And only him. How is this even possible? Have you ever heard of a contract where the employee single-handedly decides? Now, it would sure be wonderful to tell my boss, now you're going to pay me $200,000 a year, and I get to decide when this all ends. Never. And when I finally do decide to retire, if I ever do, I get a $100,000 pension a year until I die. What kind of world is this? This is Our American Stories, and great job, Alex. And when we come back, you're going to hear the tail end of this story. By the way, I am a lawyer, and contracts are generally almost always written for a specific period of time or give parties ways to terminate an agreement. And by the way, some states, Illinois and California, for example, the courts have ruled that perpetual contracts are simply unenforceable. When we come back, Steve Cook, the final chapter, and then we'll talk 
Well, we'll talk to the man who we've been talking to throughout this interview, Jarrett Skorup, after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's what we do here. We tell stories. If you want a lot of arguments, political arguments, debates, hot talk, you got the wrong place. But if you want to hear great stories, moving stories about everything imaginable, from music to art, to love, to death, to health, to law, you got the right place. And you're going to love what we're about to talk about, because in the end, Anytime we can tell a story about individuals overcoming obstacles, we love to do it. The power of the individual, often we often talk about God as well. Not any sectarian God, we're not into that. But just the power of faith in people's lives is seminal. And we want to talk about the good part of that, not the the parts that divide us. And for this hour, we're going to talk about a book called Seeing Home. And it's the Ed Lucas story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. And we're very fortunate that Ed is able to join us right now live. Thanks for being here, Ed. Thank you, and Chris is with us also. Oh, fantastic. Ed, you were a baseball nut growing up, as so many of us here in America are sports nuts. And we all have our different sports, but my goodness. And by the way, it infuriates some in academia and even our parents that we love sports more than so many other things. But good luck changing that, Ed. Um, And and uh, it was a love you shared with and was nurtured by your dad, a dad who took you to this game. Talk about this game your dad took you to. Well, he he took me to many games, but the... Game you're talking about is October the third, nineteen fifty-one. Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard around the world off the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a big, big Giant fan. We were not at the game. We watched it on a twelve-inch TV. And uh, I came home from school blowing bubble gum, and he said, "Stop it! The Giants are losing. I want to hear that." You know, and he was sitting there with his rosary beads in his hand and saying that. Hey, my Giants have to win. They haven't won since the 830s. And uh, when Thompson hit the home run off of Ralph Branca into the left field seats, he went absolutely nuts. He uh, yelled at the windows, went to pull the dishes out of the closet to prepare supper, and he dropped them. And I grabbed my baseball glove, and I said, uh, Dad, I'm going outside to play ball. And I ran outside to play ball, and... Uh, we were in the projects, in the housing projects in Jersey City, the Lafayette Gardens. And 
I was a left-handed pitcher. I wore glasses because I had a little problem with my sight. <clears throat> I was a premature baby that caused uh, sort of some eye problems. So I always felt better that I could see without the glasses. So I took them off and put them in my back pocket and threw a pitch and a line drive came back and hit me between the eyes. And that was the last time I saw anything. But the love for the game I, I always had and still have to this day. And, and despite the game taking away your sight, you still loved it. And this seems so odd for people to wrap their heads around that we can love the things that sometimes hurt us. And that was an accident, and it, doesn't, it didn't in any way change your view of the game, did it? it oh, not at all. And my parents, knowing the love that I had for the game, my mother... She read in the paper that Phil Rizzuto was going to be at the American Shops in Newark, brought me there, and um, she spoke to him on the side, and then he came over and said, Hey, Ed, I understand you're a big baseball fan. We started talking, and my father said, This is the scooter, Ed, Phil Rizzuto. And before I knew it, he gave me his home phone number and told me to keep in touch with him, and he said, I guess so you can't give me yours. Yours is unlisted. I said, Not at all. I can give it to you. And... Uh, from that time on to the day he died, we were best of friends in 56 years, and he called me right after I gave him my number and started taking me out and encouraging me all the time, and that was a great relationship. And then my mother wrote a letter to Leo DeRocha, who was then the manager of the New York Giants in 1951, and he gave me a day over at the Polo Grounds on 19, June 14, 1952, and uh, it was a day I'll never forget. And that was the day that I said, uh, I want to go into baseball. I sat there just talking to the ball players and asking questions. And they answered me like, hey, I was interviewing them. <clears throat> so that was my dream. And Rizzuto kept on saying to me, you have to get an education. You have to go further. No matter where I went, I went on to the New York Institute for the Blind, studied there for four years. Then I went on to Seton Hall University and studied communications and had a hard time getting into baseball, but here I am. Amazing. Talk about another game, I think, as well, and and, and that's, well, Jackie Robinson and, and his story. And, and just about a minute here because we're going to come up against a break, Ed, and then when we come sure. back we'll dig even further and deeper into the book. But talk about Jackie Robinson as well. We know about Phil Rizzuto and his impact on your life. Talk about the great Jackie Robinson. Wow, Jackie Robinson, that, that was in uh, April of 1946, he played his first game in Roosevelt Stadium for the Montreal team, the Dodger Farm team. And my father said to me, we must go to that game. It's a historical thing, Ed, something you'll never forget. And uh, we went there, and Robertson hit a home run that day. And um, that, you know, that was history, uh, history in uh, American history, not just baseball. You bet. And then Robertson went on to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. You bet. And we're going to get back with more of Ed and, and Chris Lucas. The book is Seeing Home, and it's the Ed Lucas story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. And we're also uh, down the road. You might enjoy this, Ed. We're going to be doing Echoing Green. We're going to be looking back at some books about sports and life. And I don't know if you had a chance to ever read that book, Ed, but it's a remarkable story about the relationship between Bobby Thompson and Ralph Branca, the guy who hit the home run, the guy who threw the pitch, the hero and the goat. And it is an amazing and beautiful American story. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can catch all of our work, all of our storytelling on our website, ouramericannetwork.org. 
And you can also mail in your stories, because we love to take the stories you tell us and tell them back to the American people. More after this message from our sponsors. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and there may have been no better call in the history of sports. I might put Secretariat's final legs of the race at Belmont in 1973. That was just an amazing call as well, and of course, the American win over the Russians in the Olympics in 1980. Uh, And those, I think, were perhaps the three bestest calls, but I think in the end, most sportcasters would probably pick that shot heard around the world call this is lee habib again and this is our american stories the book and the story is seeing home the ed lucas story a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles you know ed i wanted to just dig in before we move along with the story about this love of this game and you know when you were 12 years old in the spring of 51 your mother's brother eugene gave you a wool uniform jersey that he wore when he played semi-pro baseball in, in, in your New Jersey hometown. And, well, talk about the pride you felt as you put on that large, heavy, gray shirt with the number four <laughs> stitched on the back of it and the words Jersey City Eagles on it. Yes. Uh, that was my uncle, Gene, who I love very much, and he gave me a uniform shirt that uh, <clears throat> I wore and uh, wore every day during the summer, no matter how hot it was. It was a wool uniform in those days. And uh, my mother, she used a scrub board every night and washed that uniform that I could wear it every day. That was my shirt for the summer. And I was very proud I would go out and play ball with that on. And uh, I, I, I was grateful that my uncle gave me that. And he was a big, big baseball fan as well as a semi-pro ball player. So... Uh, I was very proud to wear that. You know, you you have this life-altering day, as you had sort of alluded to in the earlier part of our interview, but can you take us back to that day when you were 12 years old and paint the picture for our audience? If it, and by the way, I think so many of us in our lives have this one day or two or three that literally change our lives. By the way, we also did an hour on Bear Bryant, and his players talked about how Coach instilled him in the idea that one play can change a game, and one moment can change a life. So be steady and be careful. Talk about that one that one moment back when you were 12. Sure. Well, when after Bobby Thompson hit the home run, I went outside to play with my friends, uh, all excited that the Giants had won. 
and um, was in a housing project. <clears throat> we didn't pray in a baseball field. We prayed in a, uh, we called it a skating ring. It was a blacktop, and we painted bases. There was, uh, and uh, I was a left-handed pitcher, and I threw a pitch, and a line drive came back and hit me between the eyes, and that was the last thing that I ever saw. I thought it was the end of the world. I figured, what can a blind person do? The only image I had of a blind person was someone standing on a corner with a tin cup and a cane begging. I used to see that when we went into New York and my mother and father gave me coins and my sister coins to throw into their tin can and help the blind. And I said, I used to feel so sorry for them. That's what I had to do for the rest of their life. And when I lost my sight, there was the one thing I vowed I would never, never, never do, that I wanted to become somebody special, that I could at least have a regular job. Now, you, when, you, when you find out this has happened, of course, you've got to deal with this and you've got to, you've got to work through it. When did you know for sure that you were not going to have your sight back? And what was it like dealing with the doctor's? your friends, all the people you know? Well, the doctors, they, I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, and I was in up until Christmas Eve uh, in 51. They tried to save my sight, but then hemorrhaging started, as well as detached retinas. And in those days, they didn't have the advancement that they have today for detached retinas, and they couldn't save the sight. And by the way, this tells you a lot, Ed, about science. I mean, this is why innovation matters. You know, today this same thing happens. And, Ed, would, would somebody have their sight today if it had probably, happened? Probably, yes, probably. Uh, my wife had detached retinas, and uh, they have something what they call buckles. They crimp it together somehow, and the rest of the retina that's working, they'll be able to see. And uh, so she has partial sight. It's amazing. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about, Ed, in the book, you talk about two people that help you get your groove back. And my goodness, what, a, what an effort this has to be, especially as a young boy. Uh, and it was your dad and this pop artist, and we're going to play just a, a touch of a, of a, of a song and a, and, a, and a musician that changed your life. If you're sweetheart It's no secret You'll feel better If you cry When waking From a bad dream Don't you sometimes Think it's real But it's only false emotions that you feel. You know, I'm listening to those lyrics, and I wasn't sure. You know, I've heard the song a million times, but I was trying while I was listening to imagine I'm 12 and thinking, what would this love song have to do with lifting a young boy's spirit? But it's no secret you'll feel better if you cry. And then he talks about recovering your dreams. And my goodness, that's exactly what you needed, wasn't it? Absolutely. And I was never into music, didn't follow music at all. And 
after I lost my sight, I started listening to music. Johnny Ray was the big, big name that year, 1951-52. And, uh, you know, my father, he read about Johnny Ray and he told me, listen, you know, he had some hearing problems and yet he went on to become a big star. He's a big music star today, selling records. And, you know, he didn't let his uh, disability now, stop him from what he wanted to do. He said, so, Ed, you know, you have dreams. You go on and you do what you want to do. And that was you know, what my father always preached to me. You know, it's interesting. He was deaf and he became one of the great singers. And so, and that's so difficult for folks to wrap their head around. And then you've got the great Stevie Wonder and the great Ray Charles and Jose Feliciano. As other, as other inspirational models. And you know, just as a side note, I was watching John Meacham the other day, and this tells you about my life. I'm watching him on C-SPAN talking about George Bush, the father. And it wasn't about mm-hmm. politics. It was about this man's life. And too often in this world, we, we put people in the boxes because of some political affiliation. We don't do that on this show. But he had something interesting to say. He said, John Meacham asked him, what was your greatest achievement? My goodness, he had done a lot in his life. And you could tell that running the CIA was big to him because this was a way to protect all Americans. But here was the biggest. It was he who championed the Americans with Disability Act. And And here's what he said. He said, I saw always the possibility in the afflicted. And they weren't afflicted. I learned more from them than they ever learned from me. And I wanted the sense of possibility to be with any parent and child who ever suffered some debility or, or, or disability that should not prevent them from living complete and beautiful and full lives. Uh, talk about uh, something like that and the importance of that possibility. That's uh, very important. That help, has helped people more today than when I was growing up. They didn't have the Disability Act, the ADA, the American Disability <clears throat> Act, but uh, today that helps other people uh, youngsters and, you know, elderly people, a lot of uh, older people lose their sight. And uh, therefore, they're helped through this act. Where before, you know, I was told you can't do things. You know, just sit back. And when I wanted to get into sports, and I was told you can't do it, you can't do it. Go sell newspapers on a stand or something like that, I was told. And I fought my way with the help of my parents and Phil Rizzuto, who gave me the encouragement, other people that were there. So uh, today, more disabled people are fortunate in order to get help. Yep, help, support, the laws are with them. And I think in the end, the examples, the human examples are there everywhere, Ed, and I think that that's a help. But you didn't have that as much then. Johnny Ray was one, that's clear, this deaf pop star and when we come back we're going to talk about your father we're also going to bring chris into this discussion as well this is lee habib and this is our american stories and we're talking with ed and chris lucas the book seeing home a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles when waking from a bad dream Don't you sometimes think it's real, but it's only false emotions that you feel.
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We're born again. There's new grass on the field. I just love that line. It's not the put me in coach part. We're born again. There's new grass on the field. And we're talking to Ed and Chris Luke. We're talking to Ed and Chris Lucas. The book is Seeing Home, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. We were talking before the break about Johnny Ray and the influence it had on this, at the time, young boy's life who had just been uh, just been injured and rendered blind. And a lover of baseball, my goodness, this becomes difficult when you can't see. And what's he going to do with the rest of his life? That was one inspiration. The other was his dad. Talk about the role of your dad in your life. And in the end, your recovery. And this had to be, in the end, at a spiritual recovery, too. Well, my father... Um he would never let me give up. He always gave me positive uh, thoughts about anything I did and told me, you can do this. And when I started school, went on to high school, went on to college, uh, no matter what mark I got, he would say, you can do better. You can do better. He never uh, said, oh, you know, you're, you're blind. You did okay. He always said, you can do better. And uh, he was always encouraging me and also, you know, as far as faith, he was there praying and uh, having us pray as a family and um, went to church and made sure that we were very um, positive in our thinking of religion and having faith that things can happen, that pray all the time. And that's what we did. It's very powerful. You know, we were doing an hour on Jackie Robinson, and it turned out we had learned from his bride that the power of prayer is what sustained him and Branch Rickey through those two extraordinary difficult years in which Branch Rickey had told Jackie Robinson, you can play, and they're going to come at you hard. They're going to hate you. They're going to scream at you, and they're going to want a reaction. You can only play if you promise me you won't react. And my goodness, what a difficult thing to do. But that is the power of prayer in our lives and the power of focus and obedience because in the end, that's what prayer really is. It's we're listening to God for cues, but we're also, in the end, supplicating ourselves, and we're trying to obey uh, his commands, and that played a big role in your life. I wanted to bring in Chris, if I could, because uh, we sure. just learned about, Ed, your dad. Chris, what did you learn from your dad uh, through all this? Wow, the better question is, what didn't I learn? I mean, there's, there's so much, you know, how can... I think the best thing I learned, the greatest lesson I ever got from him is any time I ever feel like I can't do something or I'm a little down in the dumps or a little low or, you know, now I'm parent myself and I say, boy, this is a struggle, I just look at him and say, look at all that he's gone through and, you know, not just one obstacle but obstacle after obstacle throughout his entire life and all these blockades that have been put in his way that who am I to say that I can't get through it? If he can do it, certainly I can do it. And that's part of the reason why we wrote the book together was because, you know, obviously the setting is baseball, and that's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of names that people recognize, but it, it goes beyond that. It's a message to everybody. It's saying no matter what you want to do, you can do it. If he can do it, you can do it. You, bet. you know, Chris, your dad said something interesting, because I find this all the time. And my dad, who is a remarkable dad and did the same for me, always brought me into inner-city neighborhoods, and he always wanted me to learn, A, how to play basketball, and he figured that's where I was going to learn. But he also wanted me to learn what happens with boys who don't have dads and to go in there with love and, and help those boys and, and be a guidance to that boy and talk at least about life and love and fatherhood. It was something that was absent. And something remarkable was said, and he said, look, 
I'm, I'm a dad. I, I love you. There's nothing you can't do. But I'm not letting you use your blindness as a crutch. I'm not going to let you be a victim. It sounds to me like that's what was going on, wasn't it, Chris? That's exactly what was happening. And, I, and again, I think that's a universal lesson. You know, you should not let anything be a crutch. You should, you know, there should be nothing in your life that you can say, I can't get past. Through the, the use of family, friends, faith, whatever it takes to, to get you through that, there, there are resources out there. So, uh, you know, it, I've been blessed in my life. I know there are people that have been more blessed, less blessed, but I, I've been able to have this amazing father and have this wonderful journey with him. I actually think it's the greatest blessing. And I, I think if you would look at America right now, forget right, left, rich, poor, the great gap in America is the fatherhood gap. And boys who, and girls who don't have fathers, my goodness. And you can look at all the data after that, guys. But that supposition of what happens to a world when we don't have fathers, and particularly loving fathers, can you, you can have a father who could have done the opposite. You could have had a father who said, hey, give up. You could have had a father who said, you're never going to amount to anything. And my goodness, there are a lot of people who have dads like that, uh, don't they? Sure. I it's, mean, I, I see that, unfortunately, in, like you said, the inner city, we, Jersey City, is uh, an urban city, and I saw a lot of that, too. I did see people whose fathers had basically said to them, you know, eh, you're worthless, forget it, you're never going to climb out of where you are now, just stick to what you have, and I, I would always try, and I know my dad did the same thing, too. You know, you were talking about President Bush, people were the same thing, saying to people, look, you're not stuck where you are, you can get ahead, you just have to believe in yourself and, and work towards it. You bet, and by the way, just as a side note, one of my personal heroes, and we're going to be doing an hour on his life, uh, when his day of birth comes, is Bobby Hurley. And Bobby's, a, and for folks who don't know him, actually, this guy is such an important high school basketball coach that 60 Minutes did 30 minutes on him because he's not mm -hmm. just a basketball coach. He's a surrogate father at St. Anthony's in Jersey City, New Jersey, the little high school that could. And inner-city boys from all over the metropolitan area take one, two, and three trains for his discipline in the end. It's his discipline they come for. He doesn't treat them like victims. He doesn't ask about their sad lives. He inspires them to work and be the best versions of themselves. I don't know if you guys know Coach, but if you do, I'd love to hear a little bit about him as we then continue well, your story. I, I grew up with his son, Bobby, um, so we're about the same age, and you know, he and I would have discussions all the time because my father was notable and in the news, and so was his father, and the lesson that he said he took from his father, the greatest lesson he ever got was that his dad had so many offers from colleges and the pros and a lot of money was thrown his way that, you know, your family would be set for life. And yet he said it was so important to be where he was and making an impact. He said, if I can just change one life and put somebody in the right direction, that's worth any money that could be offered ever. So, you know, Bobby told me that was the greatest lesson he ever learned, and his brother Danny and all that. It's the same lesson I get from my dad. You know, money's not the it's, – it's great, it helps, but – it's more about how you influence people's lives and touch people's lives. All those people like Mr. Rizzuto and all the other folks that touch my father's life, it's making a difference in someone's life. Even when you don't realize it, that's the most important thing. Yeah, and it gives your life meaning, and that's so true. Coach Hurley turned it all down. I think it stunned people watching the 60-minute pieces. Like, I had a friend who I was watching with. He goes, is he crazy? I go, no, are you crazy? Are you, are you not watching the same show I'm watching? Probation officer by day, what's he trying to do? Save those boys who made some dumb mistakes. When I make a dumb mistake, my father's taking care of it. These boys out in the streets, dumb mistake, no dad. He's a surrogate dad for a whole lot of people. When we come back, guys, we're going to dig into the rest of this story in the next, uh, in the next segment. And it's a beautiful story, and we recommend... 
folks, that you buy this book, Seeing Home, The Ed Lucas Story, A Blind Broadcaster's Story of Overcoming Life's Greatest Obstacles. And my goodness, there's a father-son story here and a father-son, father-son story here because what one father learned, one father learned from his father, he passed to his son. And again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can catch all these stories, including our terrific two hours on Jackie Robinson and John Wooden, both of which I think taught about the art of love, the art of possibility, the art of mentoring, and being a father to boys even if you're not their father. And my goodness, in this country now, our boys need our love, male love, more than ever before. When we come back, more with Ed and Chris Lucas. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to the soundtrack from a really great movie, Field of Dreams. And it was so much more than a baseball movie. And this is so much more than a baseball story. The story of seeing home, the Ed Lucas story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles, written by Ed and his son. Ed learned a lot from his dad. We just learned it. Chris has learned more than he could have ever imagined. And what a lucky guy he is to have a dad. And a loving dad at that. Uh, guys, I wanted to talk, uh, possibly, Ed, your take on a, a couple of other influences in your life. Tell a story about a lesson that Sister Rose Magdalene taught you. Yes, well, I was in school, and we stayed there from Sunday night to Friday afternoon. And one uh, Friday afternoon, my father came to pick me up for the weekend. And as uh, I came downstairs with my suitcase. He said to me, Ed, you have to put these uh, galoshes on. It's snowing like crazy out, and we should have over a foot and a half by midnight. So he said, you stand up against the wall and uh, put your foot out, and I'll get on my knees and push the galoshes one way, and you push the other way, and we'll get them on. So while we're doing that, Sister Rose Magdalene walks off the elevator. And she turns and she sees my father and she goes, Mr. Lucas, what are you doing? He says, oh, sister, I don't know if you had a chance to look outside to see how it's snowing and how much snow we have out there. So I'm having Ed put on his galoshes <clears throat> and uh, this way, you know, we'll be able to go home. She said, oh, she said, let me help you. And as he was on his knees pushing, she walked over to him, gave him a push in the chest and pushed him back and said, he's only blind. He's not handicapped, so let him put it on himself. And when he does, you can leave. And an hour and a half later, we left. It's fantastic. And, you know, sometimes when we help people, 
with good intentions, we actually can, I think the moral of that story is we can actually help the people we're trying to hurt, the people we're trying to help. Let's talk about your mom, Ed. What was she doing behind your and your dad's back during this whole time that would impact your life more than she could possibly have known? Oh, yes. She was writing letters to uh, everybody from ball players to uh, politicians, everyone trying to help me and advance me. <clears throat> she was always there pushing me along and saying, you know, you can do it, you can do it. And she did that to the day she died. You know, it's interesting. We did a, a segment. When Yogi Berra died, we, uh, had, we, we basically did a dramatic reading of George Will's great column. And he wrote about these Italians, these three Italian guys, DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, and Phil Rizzuto, at a time when Italian-Americans were really struggling in America and they weren't actually treated quite the same as lots of other immigrants. Uh, and DiMaggio was like, he was just, it's so hard to understand who he is now. But think Michael Jordan of baseball. Think elite royalty of baseball. Talk about Joe DiMaggio in your life. Joe DiMaggio, after I lost my sight and became friends with Rizzuto, I went to a Yankee game, and uh, he said to me, I want you to make a friend of mine. We went into a special room, and uh, DiMaggio was there. And he introduced me to Joe, and uh, I was thrilled to meet him. And he uh, said to me, hey, tell me, uh, what kind of pasta do you like? Uh, Automatically said, Chef Boyardee. (laughs) He said, Chef Boyardee, he said, get this Irishman a bowl of pasta bazoo. He said, you have to eat better than that. I was ready to talk baseball, not Italian cuisine. Well, let me tell you, he taught you how to eat properly, which is, you know, no disrespect to my Irish friends, but I don't raise right. to Irish food. But boy, pasta vazul, once you're good in there, you're on your way to a, a whole new way of thinking about food. So you have, access, you have access to all these famous players, and more importantly, their love for you has got to move you. But how do you decide to take the leap to becoming a broadcaster? And more importantly, Ed, how did you get there? Well, after graduating high school, I, I started a club in high school called the Diamond Dusters at the New York Institute for the Blind. And I invited ball players up, and I had, was very fortunate to have Wendy McDaniel, of course, Phil Rizzuto, Jackie Robinson, um, and, and many others to um, come up and visit. And with this club, we had people read baseball things, stories to us, and talk about it. And, I wanted to get into baseball by interviewing these ball players and going back to the day DeRosa had me interview the players or meet the players at the polo grounds. I enjoyed doing that, and I said, this is what I want to do. And I was accepted at Seton Hall University, and uh, I went there for four years, and they had a radio station that I was on, WSOU, and I had a show called Around the Bases with Ed Lucas, and I was able to go to the Yankee games and interviewed some of the players, and had them on tape on my show. Ed, you brought, it's, it's clear, a certain level of humaneness to the baseball world that broadcasters had not offered before. And again, I, uh, your blindness actually becomes an asset in this respect. And from what I can see, almost every interview you ask the subject what adversities they faced. And because of your own adversities, folks felt comfortable opening up to you 
uh, to connect on a deeper level. Let's listen to one such interview with Dave Rigetti, and then, and that's uh, one of the great Yankee players, and then get your reaction to it. First question I want to ask you is about adversity. Uh, people have disabilities and they overcome them. You can see that I have uh, a blind as a bat. There are others that have uh, disabilities that you can't see. And any adversities in your life that you can speak of? Well, I don't know if folks know, but um, you know, I have 16-year-old triplets, and uh, they were all premature, born just under three pounds, all three of them. And all had a number of issues, including uh, some slight brain damage in each case, where one daughter ended up with some epilepsy, and basically uh, she had some trouble on her left side from uh, from her brain damage, and uh, basic, and, but still uh, played high school volleyball, managed to do it one-handed, which is pretty incredible. A tough kid, tough kid, and listen to Dave talk about his girl, and uh, who would have even thought to ask him that question? But you did, Ed. Yes, well, I was very close to David Getty. He was a wonderful, wonderful friend and still is a wonderful friend to me. And he um, came up to me after he had the children and told me that they were disabled. He didn't um, you know, talk to too many people about it. And he just said, I want to thank you for giving me the strength to be able to Hand on my children and look forward that they will be able to be successful because I watched you around the Yankee clubhouse for so many years. And um, I always felt great about that. And this one day I went up to him and I said, David, I know that you never talk to anyone about your children. And I would like to do a, you know an interview with you and put it on YouTube so people can see it. If you're willing to talk about your children, he said to me, I'd be happy to talk to you, Ed, because I know that you would know to ask the right questions and not be stupid about it. And that's how that interview came about. Yeah, not to be sensational about it. You weren't doing it for the gore. You weren't doing it for the headline. You were doing it for the love. And I think when things come from that space, Ed, it's always a really a good space. You know, I, there's this uh, really great French uh, interviewer. And in the 1950s and 60s, a dear friend of mine told me the reason his show is so good is because essentially he started every interview with this question. What are you going through? He actually believed Mm -hmm. that everybody was going through something or somebody close to them was, which meant they were, if they had any kind of human heart. And everybody wanted to come on this guy's show to talk about what they were going through because they trusted him. And, of course, it turns out he had so much in his life he was going through, and he was always perfectly happy to share it with folks. And that gave people hope that they could get through what they were getting through. I want to talk to Chris, if I could. Chris, you know, you're, 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 you're learning something always from your dad, but I think in the end, your, your, your greatest, greatest takeaway from all this, and particularly writing the book with your dad, which had to be different than knowing him. Actually getting this on paper had to give you, in some respects, an even deeper appreciation for what you thought you might have already known. It gave me a much deeper appreciation. We've gone on, we went on a book tour all across the country, and, and question would come up, people would say, what was the process like? And my advice to people is, even if you're not writing a book, sit down with your parents or your grandparents if they're still around or your aunts or your uncles and even if you've heard the stories a thousand times before 
share them again because you learn so much every time you hear it and you can pass that on to your children and your grandchildren. And there were some things, I, for instance, my grandparents, they both offered each one of them to have one of their eyes cut out to donate so that my father could see again. And it wow. wasn't medically possible back then, but I had never heard that story before. And, you know, we all want to do things for our children, but that goes way beyond. And to hear something like that, you know, it's, I'm glad we were able to get all that into the book and share all these wonderful stories and reach beyond baseball and just tell a story that will hopefully touch a lot of people. Well, you know, that's what we do here in our American stories. My, I was always in the mire of my Jewish friends because the Jewish people know their story. I think that's why they're so intimidating to so many people. They know their story from Abraham. They teach it to their kids. Their kids know it. And look at what those folks accomplish in their lives because they know their story. And America needs to know its story. And Ed, Chris, thanks for sharing your stories with us. It moves us to be better people. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Thank you, guys, both of you. When will this be Ed, you know? Uh, We'll get you all that information, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys.